Good morning. Welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. Well, as we approach the end of the book of Hebrews, we come to a major hinge in the author's letter or sermon. We've spent the past four Sundays focusing primarily on the core theology of Hebrews, or more specifically, the Christology of Hebrews, the theology of Christ that believers need to know. Chapters 5 through 7 introduce the identity of Jesus as our great high priest. And chapters 8 through 10 focused on the nuts and bolts of what he did. In short, Jesus offered a better sacrifice in a better sanctuary with better results. Jesus' sacrifice was himself, not a goat, calf, or bull. The sanctuary where it took place was God's heavenly throne, not an earthly tabernacle or a temple. And the results are a new and better forgiveness, a new and better sanctification, a new and better covenant for all who believe in him. Not something temporary, skin deep or outdated. But what now? We have this deep, rich, beautiful theology spanning some five chapters of this lengthy book. And that's great. But what do we do with it? The first word of today's passage, therefore, connects what we read this morning back to everything we've been discussing for weeks This morning, we start to think through the implications of everything the author has taught us about Jesus. We know who Jesus is now. We know what he's done. But what must we do in response? Well, first, we must embrace the privileges we've been given as God's children. Second, we must accept the responsibilities we've been given as God's children. And third, we must endure suffering as God's children. So open up to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, or take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. As the days get shorter and the leaves fall and everything gets a little grayer, I pray that you would give us reason to remember. Give us reminders of your goodness and your kindness and your beauty. I pray that we would look to you even during seasons of darkness, seasons of cold, seasons of loss, seasons of grief and hardship. I pray that we would look to you for warmth and life and light. And thank you for your word, uh, such an incredible source of all of those things. Uh, Lord, be with us as we read your word this morning. I pray that we would be receptive to what it is you have to say to us. I pray that you would comfort us, encourage us, teach us, challenge us, shape us, and form us as needed. Lord, I pray your spirit would be with us as we read. Help us understand your word by the power of your spirit. 
Help us become the people you call us to be. Become the people you've declared us to be by your grace and by the power of your spirit. And Lord, thank you for the better sacrifice and a better sanctuary that we have through your son, Jesus Christ, and all the better results that have come about. We'll read about those more this morning, but I pray that you would help us not just read about them, not just know them in our heads, but live them out in our everyday lives. We love you. We glorify you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our first response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is to embrace the privileges that we've been given as God's children. Much like a college degree giving you all the rights, privileges, and distinctions pertaining thereto, your major, Christians have rights, privileges, and distinctions as God's children. Now, we said that first word in verse 19 is important. Therefore, Because it connects what we read to everything that came before it. But the second word in verse 19 is important too. And that word is brothers. Now many English translations will rightly stress that this is not just directed at males within the church. And sisters is an obvious implication of that word brothers in verse 19. And what's really significant about this word is that the author of Hebrews considers his audience to be his siblings in Christ. And if they're his siblings in Christ, they're also children of God. They've been adopted into God's family by grace through faith, and that comes with some amazing perks. For example... We have confidence to enter the holy places. We talked last week about the numerous hoops the high priest had to jump through to enter the most holy place in the temple on the Day of Atonement. He had to wash his entire body. He had to wear a special outfit. And he had to offer a lot of animal sacrifices. It was a whole ordeal. But most importantly, the high priest was the only one who could enter. And he could only do it one day per year. But that's not the case anymore. Through the blood of Christ, every believer has the confidence. You might even say the authorization 
to enter God's holy presence right now. This may be shown most powerfully when the curtain in the temple rips in two upon Jesus' death on the cross. But we see more privileges laid out in these verses, especially with the let us statements in verses 22 through 25. As God's children, let us draw near. Verse 22. As God's sons and daughters, we have a level of intimacy with him that simply was not possible in our sin. Adam and Eve were kicked out of God's holy presence when they sinned. And ever since, humanity has existed at a sort of distance from God. But believers in Jesus can draw near to God with true, assured And clean hearts. We can draw near to him with bodies washed of old stains. Let us draw near. Verse 23 tells us we can also hold fast. As God's children, we have a confession of hope. Not of condemnation or fingers crossed. And we hold this confession without wavering because it is built on the firm foundation of God's faithfulness, not just ours. Let us hold fast our confession. And verse 24, let us stir up. As God's children, we are part of God's church. And while we don't always think about it this way, being part of a local church even with all of its inevitable weaknesses, blind spots, and failures, is a great privilege. To be part of a church and to benefit from the unique community, accountability, and encouragement that it provides is a wonderful gift. It's here that we challenge each other. We provoke each other. We inspire our fellow sons and daughters of God to the love and the good works that are fitting for people of our new status. Let us stir one another up. So all of this, our standing as God's children, and the privileges that come along with it are possible because of chapters 5 through 10 who Jesus is, and what he has done. Because of our better high priest, who offered a better sacrifice and a better sanctuary with better results, we can draw near to God in a better way. We can hold fast to a better hope. And we can stir one another up to live better lives. What an overwhelming joy these privileges should be. But with all that said, it would be irresponsible to only focus on the privileges that we have as God's children and ignore our very real responsibilities. Now, thankfully, we're not on our own as we strive to live up to these expectations. The Holy Spirit convicts us, empowers us, and guides us as we go. But let's see the responsibilities starting in verse 26. 
For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So in addition to embracing the privileges, we must accept the responsibilities we've been given as God's children. We covered some of those responsibilities in that third and final let us statement of verse 24. We have a responsibility to be in relationship with fellow believers, which includes, but is not limited to, loving one another, serving one another, worshiping with one another, and encouraging one another in the church. But in some ways, verses 26 through 31 outline the most basic bedrock responsibility. The most obvious expectation of God's children, which Terry hit on in our community meditation. Holiness. And if holiness isn't what we're after, if we go on sinning deliberately, after being given all the amazing privileges we discussed in verses 19 through 25, then something has gone terribly wrong. Now, that phrase, go on sinning deliberately, does not suggest that Christians have to be perfect in this life. That is an unattainable expectation. But it does suggest that we are actively repenting of sin when we inevitably fall into it. It suggests that we're actually fighting against sin rather than being content to live with it. And it suggests that we are growing in holiness rather than falling back into old patterns of rebellion, idolatry, and disobedience. Or even just remaining static. We must be holy as God is holy. Verses 26 through 31 make up the fourth warning passage we've encountered in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, warned us against drifting away. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, warned us against not entering God's rest the way the Israelites did. And chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, warned us against falling away and not being restored to repentance. Now, as we've discussed throughout this book, there's legitimate disagreement and debate about how to interpret those passages. But it's safe to say that if we're reading these passages to one of two extremes, either with a careless assumption that this couldn't happen to me, 
or a deep dread that my salvation is totally dependent upon me, then we are reading them wrongly. The author issues these warnings to motivate us to do something. So if our theological systems or our preconceived notions force us to read these words in a way that robs them of all that power, then we're reading them wrongly. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, motivates us to pay close attention. 3, 12 through 14, motivates us to enter rest. 6, 4 through 6, motivates us to mature and persevere in our faith. And these verses, 10, 26 through 31, motivate us to accept the responsibilities of being God's son or daughter. Of course, it's easy to hear a phrase like, accept the responsibilities, and assume that we're going legalistic. Do you mean to tell me that my salvation is conditional? Are you arguing that my good standing with God comes with strings attached? Would you dare say that God's grace got me into the club, but my works keep me in? I'm not saying any of that. But the author of Hebrews is making it clear that someone who claims to believe in Jesus, someone who wants all the privileges of verses 19 through 25, but goes on sinning deliberately in verses 26 through 31, thus treating Jesus like a doormat, should expect judgment, punishment, and vengeance from God. And just for the record, this is not a case of the author of Hebrews going rogue from the rest of the New Testament. Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. And Jesus' brother says in James chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The answer to that rhetorical question is no. But let's move on to chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith 
and preserve their souls. So we must embrace the privileges we've been given as God's children. We must accept the responsibilities and we must endure suffering. Many weeks ago, we mentioned the historical context of the book of Hebrews, how much of this audience likely made up of mostly Jewish Christians were suffering persecution for their faith. Some of that persecution was social, public reproach and affliction in verse 33. Some of it was physical. They went to prison in verse 34. And some was economic. Their property was plundered in verse 34. One commentator writes, It is difficult for modern readers to feel the full fury of the shame and public ostracism experienced by these first century believers. They were demonized and depersonalized as many minorities have been throughout history. On the one hand, early followers of Jesus ran afoul of their Jewish colleagues because of their insistence that Christ was the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel and thus the sole means of salvation. On the other hand, their non-Jewish neighbors began to despise them because they refrained from the worship of idols and participation in other immoral practices associated with pagan society. Since virtually every civic, social, and family event involved such practices, those who followed Christ seemed to be tearing at the very fabric of society. The Christians just didn't fit in with anybody. And we maybe can relate. The Roman historian Tacitus called the church a deadly disease. And he accused Christians of hatred of the human race. Christians suffered significantly under three Roman emperors. Claudius kicked Jewish Christians out of Rome in 49 AD because they were talking a little too much about some Christ guy. Nero blamed all the Christians for a catastrophic fire in 64 AD. And Domitian led perhaps the first extended and organized persecution campaign against Christians in the 80s and 90s. Enduring suffering was just part of the deal for these believers. But the author also reminds them that they can endure this suffering, this persecution, as God's children. And what makes him so sure of this? Well, it's because they've done it in the past. Verse 32. How did they endure? They remembered their better possession. Verse 34. They eagerly awaited their reward. Verse 35. And they looked forward to what is promised. Verse 36. They were confident that one day Christ would return and that the weight of glory they would see on that day would make their present suffering more than worth the necessary endurance. 
So it's in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that we can become children of God by faith. We are granted a kind of access to God, an authorization to enter his holy presence unlike anything we've ever had before. But what do we do now? We embrace the privileges, we accept the responsibilities, and yes, we endure suffering. Now we have some ideas about what that looked like practically for the Hebrews, but what about us? How do we embrace the privileges of verses 19 through 25? Well, we can pray together, a novel idea. We can worship together. We can live life together. The Spirit helps us pray. The Word guides our worship. And the church is the primary place where it all happens. How do we accept the responsibilities of verses 26 through 31? Well, we can start by taking the warning passages of Hebrews seriously. We don't minimize or trivialize sin. And we do not take for granted the price Jesus paid for our salvation. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We strive for holiness. And how do we endure suffering? Like that mentioned in verses 32 through 39. The same way the Hebrews did. We do it together with our eyes set on our better possession and with the knowledge that Jesus is coming. We do not throw away our confidence just because the world might hate us. Jesus told us that would happen. Nor do we compromise. After all, if we shrink back under the world's pressure, we'll find ourselves shrinking back when Christ comes. Nor do we practice our faith in silence, behind closed doors. By God's grace, we learn to joyfully accept suffering for Jesus' name. So if you believe in Jesus, you are a child of God. The author of Hebrews would call you his brother or his sister. And as a child of God, by his grace, through Christ's blood, you've been given access, authorization, to an exclusive club, God's holiness. So embrace those privileges, accept your responsibilities, and endure suffering by the power of the Spirit. And whatever you do, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great, even an eternal reward. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the right to pray to you. The privilege of calling you our Father. I pray that reading over words like brother or sister or father in Scripture would not be something that we take for granted. Thank you that we are adopted into your family by your grace. Thank you that we can draw near to you in prayer. Thank you that we can approach you with confidence and comfort and joy, knowing that we aren't your enemies, we are no longer orphans, we aren't rebels, but rather sons and daughters, servants and friends. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace these privileges. It's so easy for us to get discouraged and and beaten down and doubtful and assume that even after everything Christ has done for us, we are not worthy of you. Our sin is too great. Our mistakes are too deep. Our stains are too sad. But Lord, help us recognize and embrace the privileges we have as your children. Help us also accept the responsibilities. Lord, I pray that we would strive for holiness, that we wouldn't give sin safe harbor in our hearts, in our minds, in our mouths, in our bodies. Help us be aggressively, consistently pursuing holiness, not just on our own power, but by your spirit's power, with the help of the church, with the guidance of your word. And Lord, I also pray that you would help us endure suffering. We might not be facing the same hardships and the same persecution that first century or second century Christians endured or that Christians right now in other places around the world are enduring. Nevertheless, I pray that you would help us persevere in our faith, that if or when the time comes when we do face social persecution or physical persecution or economic persecution or whatever other forms of polite persecution could arrive, I pray that you would help us endure suffering, help us hold fast our confession, even under pressure, even when we face opposition. And Lord, help us look forward to our reward. I pray that we would heed the warnings of the book of Hebrews, but also Celebrate the assurance of the book of Hebrews that we do have reason for confidence. We do have rewards to look forward to. We do have promises that you will keep. So, Lord, I pray that we would endure by looking forward to those things. Again, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it's because of who you are and what you've done, as we see laid out so thoroughly in chapters 5 through 10, that we respond the way we do, as we see in these verses this morning. We love you. We honor you. We thank you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.